Uh, this is podcast 113, entitled Return to Form. But we really, or I might really entitle it podcast number one in the new series, the new um, story arc, because I'm going to be looking at some new material, and it's after a sort of kind of drought or desert in PZ's podcast, which simply operationally, so you know it, had nothing to do with um, the creators and owners of PZ's podcast. We were um, uh, struck by the surprising going out of existence of our server, of which we were not notified. And then um, this caused us to have to resubmit to iTunes. And uh, the f server was restored through Mockingbird quickly and with the tremendous help of James Fishwick and his enterprising, persevering pluck and smarts. And yet then, for some reason, in terms of the resubmission process, it went into a file at the iTunes store instead of the normal queue. And uh, we were lost for two or three weeks until finally James again intervening. Um, the file was reopened and resubmitted, and we're now back on. And this is wonderful, and I can't tell you. But for me personally, as you all soon see, I hope, in this uh, podcast is a little bit of a new beginning. Now, the podcast number one, as I might call it, 
or number 113, like a freeway that has been given different uh, uh, um, exit numbers because of construction. The uh, number one in the new series is dedicated to Jim McNeely, who is a very supportive listener of PZ's podcast. And it is he who has underlined the importance, uh, once again for me, of the crown Crouch, the Lounge Crooner Classics. And I've just uh, given you at the start the probably high watermark of all Lounge Crooner Classics, which is Max Brandenburg's title song for the 1962 Danish American co-producer film entitled Journey to the Seventh Planet. And uh, Brandenburg's cover, the very uh, possibility of such a song existing for such a movie with such a unique title is itself such a wonder and a testament to the powerful truth of the absurdity of God's grace in the positive sense of that word, as I'll bring out at the end of the cast today. This makes me want to dedicate it to Jim. Now, um, at the very end, you're going to hear a brief jingle that Joe Meek wrote and created in 1960 for his record label, Triumph Records in London, and this was played and created for Radio Luxembourg, which was an offshore so-called pirate radio station against the BBC. And I remember it. I mean, I remember listening to Radio Luxembourg in um, France and in uh, Holland when it was a very much a going concern in the mid-60s. And so it touches a nerve. But actually, you'll see that the, the, the jingle is what I hope will, will accompany the words at the end of the cast. Now, the... Um, issue here is uh, an issue I want to describe in theological terms, and I want to speak in terms of what um, is sometimes called, and I use the right word for it, karma. And this is not an attack on karma. This is actually a, um, a, a kind of um, sympathetic review of what that very deep notion is attempting to communicate, and also a kind of absurd, but to me, the unique and almost open window of response that I can see to the reality of karma, because I say reality consciously. Um, I'm not here tilting, because I remember I put that podcast out about um, uh, coming back from the East recently with Mary on a long, long flight to Chicago. And um, the karma, but in my terms, it took on a different form. As I was trying to recline in this very, very long journey, trying to sleep at night, I had this waking dream of the little boy in Young Sherlock Holmes, the Spielberg-directed wonderful movie in which young Watson, of sort of a 12-year-old, just on the verge of pubescence but not there, um, is surrounded as he sleeps in a graveyard. Um, he's surrounded by uh, live, uh, I should say, um, stop-motion animated cupcakes, pastries, croissants, scones, delicious Danish uh, and uh, cheesecakes uh, surrounding him and uh, walking around him on their little pastry legs. Uh, his whole life, his whole concupiscence is tied up with these bakery goods, and he's chubby already. And they first they charm him, then they delight him, then he begins. they begin to force themselves into his mouth to his joy, but then they uh, attempt to suffocate and strangle him. And it's a nightmarish vision of all these things that he loves so much that have now become a kind of suffocating thing. And it's a little similar to, you might say, that's a young man's, a boy's version of, of Marley and uh, Scrooge's um, 
vision as they look out over the London uh, from the third floor window of Scrooge's enormous, dark, shuddering, haunted home of the past. And uh, they see all the ghosts of human beings um, skating through the air in the snow, carrying the chains that they wrought in life, and the garbage and the lugage and the bagage uh, so following them, which they can not unfetter from their feet. And uh, this picture, call it purgatory, call it hell, call it uh, the facts of life as you die. This is very, very stirring. And I remember seeing it as a child on Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, which is actually quite good. Um, and there it is. Oh, golly. Um, this sense that I had on the flight that old... Uh, friends, old associations, old experiences from the bottom up, uh, betrayers, betrayed, uh, loved ones, people I didn't want to see their picture of, movies, the ghost of Frankenstein, Steve Perry, oh, Sherry, you know, everything, the Beatles um, coming at me experiences raising children, experiences being raised as a child, Saturday matinees, things today, Nick Kershaw. I mean, like the list is so appallingly long that it. I felt very much like one of the characters in the Christmas Carol vision. Uh, this chain would be a very long one of associations, all of which were really there to kind of exercise something else, which I never realized was there until I became an adult. And um, this uh, picture of the karma of life, the chains you've wrought in life, Life came very strongly of late, and I've been thinking about it during the kind of uh, desert time with no podcast, and that's why I want to harp on or claim or um, envision or project a slightly different theme in the next few casts, beginning with today. When you look at your life, what I have found, and I want to say what I mean so I'm not disguising it, because I'm criticized sometimes, very rightfully so, by listeners who say that... You know, sometimes you're obviously talking about something, but what is it that you're talking about? What do you actually mean? And part of me doesn't want to talk about what I actually mean, and there might be good reasons for that. Or it may be that I'm just a coward, or I just can't be, uh, I have to sort of nudge my way or um, ease my way, back my way into material. But I'm going to try to be as clear as I can. I find as life goes on that there is one uh, issue in particular, one sort of, call it an anxiety. There is one anxiety that I have deep within myself that is so deeply embedded in my whole physio, emotional, um, spiritual being, uh, quote, PZ, end of quote, that it is like the alien that attaches itself to, I think the actor is, um, oh golly, he's that wonderful actor. I think he plays Lambert in Alien, the original Ridley Scott Alien. And uh, uh, this... Uh, not Ian Holm, but the other guy. You know who I'm talking about. And uh, the alien uh, creature in uh, gestation attaches it to his lungs and his stomach. And it cannot be cut out. Uh, the best efforts to, uh, to cut it out, to excise it, to surgically remove it with the highest possible technology fail because every time they attempt to cut out the alien being from this man's system, it attacks him and begins to strangle him and kill him. So that the, that he would lose his life if they... Um, if they did it. So it's un, uh, they can't cut it out. And that, I would say, is a very powerful and accurate metaphor of the way I understand my own life. That is to say, <clears throat> there is one particular anxiety, let's call it that, or as a friend of mine sometimes uses the word terror. There is a terror at the heart of things that is so deeply 
embedded in me that it, it's as if it's like me. Not long ago, when I was a young child, I had something called a lipoma removed from my neck. It's a kind of a fatty tissue that attaches itself to, to the back of my neck, and it was caused a very unsightly lump. And it was removed, although it was much harder to remove than I thought. Actually, a college classmate was the surgeon of mine. I thought that was curtains as soon as I found out who the surgeon actually was. But fortunately, he forgot some things or whatever, and he removed this thing, and he was right to do it. And he removed it, but it was much more invasive to my nerve endings and all the things that I had seen. It was a big mova, um, a large of a size, a size of a large jellyfish, and I saw it. And but the main thing is, it was embedded. Now I've got another one. As I lose some weight of late, I've got another one in another part of my body, which is cannot be removed because it's been there too long. It's gotten itself so embedded in the other blood vessels and nerves of um, a particular. Uh, part of my back that it's unremovable. Well, that's a little bit what the alien creature is in Alien, and what um, and what we're dealing with here in terms of a profound karmatic inherited or a psychogenetic physio emotional terror that I have. And nothing has worked. Nothing has worked. I've uh, uh, many many things have worked. I mean, here you know, an infinite number of father figure substitutes, an infinite number of good experiences and satisfactory successful experiences in life, an infinite number of therapeutic encounters with it, healing sessions, healing of the memories, all every every uh, arrow in the quiver of Christian spirituality, let alone spirituality in general, let alone yoga spirituality has been deployed against this particular growth and nothing has succeeded. Many other things have changed. Many other things have been uh, dealt with, it, and especially in my opinion, at least of late. But this one thing stands out as a devastating failure. I was looking recently at the new book or the book that's been publicized out recently by Michael Phelps whenever it came out. It was called No Limits. And I looked at it and I think he was a brilliant, is a brilliant athlete, but No Limits. And I thought to myself, good Lord. And, and that's what they substituted for Abide With Me in the opening of the Olympic Games. American television saw an interview with Michael Phelps, good as that was, as opposed to what the English Roddy Doyle was presenting, Abide With Me, with all its verses sung in memory of the 7-7 seven, seven victims. And there we saw that no limits and I thought to myself you know he's a brilliant athlete and maybe he can attest to that but this is the exact opposite of my experience the exact opposite of my experience and, and what about yours I mean are there not limits whether they're physical or psychological this particular thing for me functions as a limit it is un uh, what is someone who was today using the connection the two words incorrigible intransigent and irresistible and I think we came up with the word in in intransible <laughs> it's a perfect word um it cannot, it's incurable. Or rather, so far it has withstood all efforts, the very highest and best that I could know in this world, to cure. Other things have gone, but it is like the lipoma on my back, seemingly unremovable. And the only uh, hope for it is some form of acceptance, which at least uh, detracts from its distressing hold on my belief that it should be capable of excision. Now, I ask you to think about that in your own experience. There's some relationship, some person, some feeling, some recurrent dream. You know, Citizen Kane, Rosebud. Remember Marnie by Hitchcock, which is a very good movie, despite all its bad press. It's a, it's a great idea. J. Preston Allen wrote it. I think it was based on a book, but I'm not sure. It's a, very, it's a darn good idea about an early experience which is incapable, save through Sean Connery's... I don't think Sean Connery is actually present when the, uh, 
when the final catharsis occurs for tippyhedron. I can't remember. Maybe he is. Maybe he's present because you need a helper. You can't get through the catharsis. But whatever it is in my experience, and it may mirror yours, is that something has proved unable to be fixed. Now, given the fact of that, that's why I'm struck by the passage where Huxley or Heard, one of the two, or someone like that, says where they're sort of criticizing aspects of traditional um, teaching about the atonement as being sort of abstractions, mental tricks, or overly pessimistic about the possibility of healing. I find them unconvincing, because at one point I think it's... Uh, I had a shiver run down my spine, an absolute shiver when I think it was Huxley who wrote, as to the possibility that what happened in and through Christ on the cross might have actually had an objective uh, characteristic or chemistry or reality, that at least, let us say that we cannot go there, or he sort of dismisses the one absurdist character, the one possibility that this, you know, the Lessing dismissed, that, that a contingent historical fact could in fact have a universal, um, one-time universal application. This is what Cranmer was trying to say at the communion when he said the one full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, satisfaction, and oblation for the sins of the whole world. It cannot be true from the standpoint of experience and everything that Lessing was trying to say, that a, that a contingent historical fact cannot be the basis of a universal philosophical maxim except if it were, in fact, the one exception. Or, to put it in Kurt Kierkegaardian terms, or for that matter, Roger Corman terms, that's my view of Roger Corman, if it were absurd, if it were, in fact, ridiculous. And I'm drawn more and more, this may sound obvious to you, but I'm more drawn than I was hitherto in recent times to, an, to a religious or spiritual or even theological response to the intractable, intransigent character of the besetting deficiency and fault in a person's character, and mine own in particular. It occurred to me the other day, and I was very struck by the biography of Henry F. Light, the author of uh, Abide With Me. I was very struck that Light's conversion as a young man occurred when his father figure a man named Burroughs. They were in actually Southern Ireland. This is Scots-Irish time. This is um, uh, Light was a Scots-Irish uh, clergyman, or actually a young person whose life had brought him to a place of transferring his need for a father to a very good man. He had the great good fortune of having an excellent father figure named Burroughs. And as Burroughs lay dying, he I think he was a clergyman also, he turned to the man and said something to the young man. He said, you know, I now believe as I'm dying, and they died, you know, publicly in those days. But this is accurate. This actually was said. He said, I've come to believe that the words of St. Paul, and I believe he was referring to Romans 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Actually, not that line, I lie, but more likely the line, I'm convinced that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, neither death nor life, nor principalities nor powers, and so forth. He turned to Henry Francis Light and said, Henry, I'm convinced now that the, the words of St. Paul are perhaps to be taken in their plain and literal sense. Now, in the context of 1820 uh, Irish Anglicanism, hyper-English Irish Anglicanism, that was an enormous statement. By the way, uh, I believe that Burroughs' uh, death was marked by a monument 
primarily put up by his Catholic parishioners who did not attend church. They attended the Catholic church, but they were his parishioners in the geographical sense. And I believe Burroughs, who was also a school teacher, was much loved by his parishioners in both confessions. And uh, he said, uh, in their plain and literal sense, and what he meant was, that, could it be possibly true that this might actually be true? He took an absurdist line, and uh, Light was convinced. Light was convinced and became had an evangelical conversion in his 20s. Later on, at the end of his life, when he contracted tuberculosis and was dying, and he did in fact write Abide With Me in 1847 on the verge of his death, just before leaving his parish in South Devon, and a very remarkably moving to Nice, where he would take over duties there and die, but hopefully in a better atmosphere. It was like going to Arizona today, at least a few, until a few years ago, where it was dry. He thought he could maybe survive, and he didn't. He died on the way to Nice. But he wrote Abide With Me. And he said, um, after he wrote it, I think he said it on his way to Nice, somewhere in a parish, he said, um, I uh, speak to you as a dying man. Uh, and I think he said this. I'm sure he said this. At one, I speak to you as a dying man who is perhaps very close to death physically, but I speak to you of the cross of Christ. And then I think in another, in the same connection, he said something like this. And I can speak at this point experimentally, i.e., I can, you know, I'm a victim of the very songs I sing. What is it, Alicia Williams? No, that was I Love the Nightlife. Stuart Gerson, you'll know the answer to that. A light became a victim in the very best possible sense of the very songs he had sung in life. Now, that's what I'd like to be. He said, I speak to you of the cross of Christ, and I speak to you of this experimentally. And then he wrote, Abide with me, and he had written, by the way, Praise uh, my soul, the King of Heaven. But he said this, Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. I wish I didn't speak that in a preacher voice. I wish I could just read that as it is. But it's such a powerful affirmation of the unity of life and death, the unity of the need to have the uh, greater reality of God in both places, with whom and in whom there is a unity of experience and communion. I might even say participation. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. And so I want to spend in the next few uh, weeks with you here on PC's podcast a kind of renewed look, you might call it a return to form, at some of the things I used to say about the cross, things that struck me as being highly conceptual and primarily intellectual, as in, if you can only accept this idea and tell yourself that this idea about your guilt or your life or your victimhood or your victimizing or your terror, or in my case, anxiety, is true, then it will become true for you, much of which, most of which, almost all of which for me has proved to be a head trip. And that's why a far uh, larger, deeper picture of the intransigence of the human condition and the fact that there are some things we can in fact learn about ourselves which are vital. And in one sense, anthropology does precede theology, or rather, no rather, theology is rooted in anthropology, that is, into a proper understanding of who we are, or to quote Huxley, and I think maybe heard, I agree with both of them here, and I think you probably will too. And I said this, by the way, on the Liberate site in the interview with Tully and Chavigian, which I think aired uh, yesterday, which probably was was the 10th of August 2012, that Huxley had said that what the world needs 
is th some the more, more theological um, psychologists. It, it was a phrase that struck me because it's what I'd always thought I was doing, but I was afraid to use the psychologist word because many of my Christian uh, co-workers and colleagues would have said, oh, well, that's, uh, that's theology from the ground up. That's, that's uh, always start with the Bardian assertion. And I now know that that's not true. Always start rather with who we are and understanding who we are. And then the word of God comes to us almost effortlessly. And it's almost always, I would say always guised in the form of mercy in the cross. But, um, so, but if I said to secular people, I need to be a theological psychologist, they would reject that. What do you mean theological? So poor Huxley was rejected as being too religious by his peers in England. He was really rejected. That's one of the main reasons he moved in addition to his pacifism. His intellectual peers hated his turn to mysticism. And his, uh, and of course, Christian people would find it, that word, um, psychological, psychologists would, would be a block or a stumbling stone. Actually, both of them are indissoluble, intransigently indissoluble. And that's what I really want to talk about. But this time I want to move a little bit out of the um, psychological, more to the possibility, the absurd possibility that what happened in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or at the site of what is now the Church of the Sepulchre, uh, Sepulchre located so ironically, really, in um, the place where it is, or so hard to get to, and so unusually in the place that it now is politically. It's such a um, remarkable fact, but it's typical of all truth that it is almost always to be found in the strangest spots. And even today, it is the most extraordinary experience, because in a way, if it's true, Lessing is wrong about the absurd. He's not wrong about anything else. But he's wrong about the absurd. I mean, if you build your life on some particular thing that happened to you 25 years ago, you're wrong because you didn't even understand it when it was happening to you. And what was happening to you was probably happening to you for reasons that had nothing to do with what you thought it was because you saw it from your point of view, but other people saw it from other points of view. And if you put the whole thing together, you missed huge amounts of light and of truth. And you really don't want to know. Just as Charles, what was his name? Um, um, Charles Foster Kane and Citizen Kane, he did not want to know, could not know. He knew instinctively, and his life was driven by it, but he could not know materially what had actually happened. It was too painful. And so only we, the viewers of that remarkable film, know what actually happened to Charles Foster Kane that caused this particular form of rapacity and depression and finally death. And the same is true, and romanticizing, and uh, symbolic substitutes by the 10 trillion at San Simeon. Well, we have this in ourselves, and I feel that the answer to the un, let's say it right, the intangible, and I mean that actually, the intransible or irresistant features of our mental, emotional, personal, and ego, and needing to be healed, and desperately wanting and crying out to be healed, self that this has to lie probably in the absurd. And I have come more and more to feel, as I had that little shiver the other day reading the Huxley quote about the cross, that it probably does in fact lie into something that even the New Testament could not get its handle or hand around in any kind of complete way without falling into missing out on other sides, that the actual power of whatever it is that happened there cannot be contained by any one particular verbal formula and yet uh, is profoundly touched by all and instinctively connected like those wonderful instruments in uh, Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein that Kenneth Strick Batten designed for Universal Pictures and James Whale by which a electrical current actually makes 
contact. And that's what the next few ones about, uh, podcasts are about. And I hope that they will, in essence, uh, constitute, for myself at least, a kind of return to form or the very words that Joe Meek himself used to describe this. Yeah, the night, right!